1985, a familiar face on the evening news caught Sarah Ambrusco's eye. Fred Tokars, a junior prosecutor in the Atlanta DA's office, was being interviewed about a case where an attorney was gruesomely murdered by his lover. Sarah immediately recognized Fred's intelligent, sensitive eyes. They'd grown up together in the idyllic suburbs of Buffalo, New York. Sarah, still youthfully energetic but just past 30, was working as a promoter at the popular Atlanta nightclub, Elan. She made good money, but she desperately wanted out of the fast-paced club scene and into a stable, traditional family life like the one she'd grown up in. Fred Tokars looked like the perfect ticket. On a whim, she found his phone number and called him up. After a brief chat, Fred asked Sarah out on a date. Sarah provided a perfect opportunity for him, too. She was the bubbly ex-cheerleader sweetheart who would complete his respectable image. Husband, father, family man. Useful descriptors for a man with political aspirations. Just as importantly, Sarah had connections within the Atlanta nightlife world, where the criminal element congregated. Fred's aspirations ran two ways, up into the elegant heights of Atlanta's political sphere and down into the reservoirs of drug money that ran beneath it. After less than a year of courtship, Fred proposed to Sarah. But the marriage was only one piece of a much larger plan, one that would eventually cost Sarah her life. One death can change the world. At least, that's what assassins believe. Welcome to Assassinations on the ParCast Network. Every Monday, we examine the famous assassins of history and the men and women who were assassinated. I'm your host, Bill Thomas. And I'm your host, Kate Leonard. This is our first episode on Sarah Tokars, the Atlanta housewife who dug too deep into the suspicious money behind her husband's law practice. In 1992, she was killed on the orders of her own husband, Fred Tokars. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. Every other problem we are confronted by, poverty and crime and miseducation, they are all of them rooted in the dissolution of the marriage-based two-parent family. There are many, many causes, and we have to address them all at once. The lack of opportunity, the loss of values, the breakdown of the family, poor schools, poverty, prejudice children having children, too few police, too much alcohol, drugs. It was 1986, smack in the middle of a decade of moral panic across the United States. The crack epidemic was ravaging cities with violence. The AIDS crisis was claiming thousands of young lives every year. Then there was the so-called satanic panic, involving several high-profile cases of babysitters committing heinous crimes against children, apparently as part of a satanic ritual. 
Anxiety about sex, drugs, depraved women, and endangered children consume the nation. Historians have cited this moral panic as a major turning point in a shift towards more conservative politics and traditional values. But Fred Tokars saw opportunity in the chaos. Congress had responded to the crack epidemic with a set of money laundering laws aimed at tracking the huge sums of cash generated by drug sales. Fred had been working as a prosecutor since he finished law school four years ago, but he soon realized the real money was on the other side. In 1986, Fred left the Atlanta DA's office to set up a criminal defense and tax law practice. This was the first step down a path of crime, dishonesty, and cruelty that would ultimately lead to the death of his newlywed wife, Sarah. Sarah and Fred Tokars were both born in Amherst, a wealthy suburb of Buffalo, New York, in the early 1950s. Both of their fathers were doctors. They went to the same schools and shared the same idyllic memories, running carefree around the safe neighborhood streets nestling under the arms of their stay-at-home mothers. Those memories, Fred would have pointed out, depended on the high salary of a respected surgeon. As an adult, Sarah would long for the stability and emotional comfort she remembered from her childhood. But Fred was raised to understand that the peaceful world their families shared was built on financial success. As he got older, he became obsessed with recreating the wealth and prestige he grew up with. Sarah and Fred weren't friends growing up, but they knew each other from a distance. Their families were acquainted, and Fred's brother actually dated Sarah's sister when they were all in high school. After graduation in 1971, Fred and Sarah's paths diverged. Sarah went off to college in Colorado and Fred to study accounting in Miami. He was a good student, and after he graduated, he secured a job in Atlanta at Price Waterhouse, the second largest professional services company in the world. But Fred wasn't satisfied with accounting. It seemed like a step down compared to his father's career as a doctor. Fred's ambitions started to turn towards law, a field that was just as respectable and high-earning as medicine, but with a more glamorous air. He enrolled in night classes, adding a law degree to his accounting certification in 1982 at around the age of 30. But the law school he'd attended was an unknown name and, as it turned out, unaccredited. He didn't have the credentials to snag a job at any of Atlanta's major law firms. Instead, he ended up at the Atlanta DA's office. Fred was aiming for a career that was high-rolling and glamorous. Instead, his work as an attorney tended more towards the respectable and the moral. As an assistant prosecutor, he fought to clean up Atlanta's crime-ridden streets, one minor drug dealer at a time. As a result of the city's booming nightlife, much of the crime he was prosecuting centered around the drug trade and its associated crimes, both financial and violent. They were small crimes, not major cases, but after a couple of years, he'd amassed a clear, comprehensive knowledge of exactly what went into running a successful drug ring and what not to do if you wanted to stay out of prison. But the DA's office was only a stepping stone for Fred. His nickname amongst his colleagues was Fast Fred, both for his hard partying and for his brazen ambition. He made it no secret that he had plans to become a tax law specialist serving a wealthy clientele. 
Even while he was working for the DA, he was planting seeds for a social and professional life amongst Atlanta's elite. Fred was a natural at spotting and cultivating the relationships that could further his career. Any night of the week, he could be found dining at upscale restaurants with lawyers on the other side of the bench. When he wasn't out networking at nightclubs until the wee hours of the morning, he was teaching night classes on taxes and white-collar crime at local law schools. And then, in 1985, Fred received a fateful call from his childhood acquaintance, Sarah Ambrusco. By the next year, their whirlwind courtship led to marriage, a big house in the affluent suburbs of Cobb County, and the birth of their first child, Ricky. Their marriage could have been a charming story of serendipity, but Fred's ambition was insatiable. His late nights courting powerful legal contacts didn't slow down after the marriage or after the baby arrived. His career always came before his family, before anything. Even though Fred was climbing the ranks, the DA's office didn't pay very well. There was more money, lots more, to be made in private practice. When Congress passed a new set of money laundering laws in 1986, Fred saw his opening. With his accounting background and his knowledge of the Atlanta underworld he'd picked up as a prosecutor, he was in a unique position to understand how the new laws would affect the drug trade and to understand their loopholes. Leaving his steady, reliable government job was not an intuitive decision. Fred and Sarah had a newborn baby. Sarah had recently lost her job, and her $40,000 annual salary, about $92,000 in today's money. And someone had to pay the hefty mortgage on their new home in expensive Cobb County. Fred was willing to risk his family's financial security temporarily, not because he was reckless with money. In fact, he'd always been extremely frugal, and his anxiety about money only grew as he earned more. But he knew once they weathered the first year or two of instability, he'd be raking in more than enough money to support his growing family. In 1986, when he was in his mid-30s, Fred set up shop in an office rented from an associate of his, a shady criminal defense lawyer named Murray Silver. He turned the basement of his and Sarah's house into a home office, an office Sarah was barred from entering. He needed a space to himself. Fred started his private practice with criminal defense, working on behalf of the kinds of criminals he had just recently been prosecuting for the state. Defending accused criminals is, of course, thoroughly legal and necessary to a fair judicial process. But once Fred had built relationships with some of Atlanta's prominent drug dealers, he started to blur the lines by offering them legal advice before they were indicted for crimes. Once Fred was in with the right crowd, he added tax fraud cases to his roster of services. Tax fraud cases, it turned out, meant helping criminals move their money into offshore accounts that the IRS couldn't trace. He ingratiated himself with an expanding network of drug dealers and traffickers, advising them about their finances, helping them navigate the new money laundering laws, and recommending the best moves to avoid prosecution. As he explained in an article he wrote for the Atlanta Business Chronicle in 1990, money laundering and cash transaction requirement laws became so complex, drug dealers ultimately need to hire attorneys to explain how to circumvent this new system. 
For the most part, these professional services are no different than those rendered to legitimate clients. For the most part. But Fred wasn't just crunching numbers. He'd help his clients purchase and operate nightclubs, which they'd use to turn their dirty money into legitimate earnings. He even helped them pick the best fall guy to take the blame when the law was on their tail. He was helping direct the daily operations of a drug distribution network that, according to court documents, used force and violence, including kidnapping, torture, and murder, to protect the continuity of its operations. At best, Fred was complicit in that violence. At worst, he could be considered an equal conspirator in it. But his business was going strong. By the end of the 80s, he was making a killing, all from the drug money he helped to launder. He was confident he wouldn't be caught. After all, he knew the law inside and out. And his respectable public image, forged at the DA's office, still held up. He was friends with judges and government employees. He was involved with political campaigns and was appointed to a position as a part-time city judge. His colleagues saw no reason to suspect him of any undue involvement with his criminal clients. From the outside, he looked like any other defense lawyer in Atlanta. But at home, it was becoming heartbreakingly clear to Sarah that the good guy act was a veneer over Fred's cruelty, anxiety, and violence. Coming up, we'll look at the truth about the Tokar's fairy tale marriage and the extreme actions Fred took to protect himself and his dirty money. Now, back to the story. Sarah Tokar's was one of seven daughters, born in 1953 to a loving, successful surgeon father and stay-at-home mother. She grew up wealthy and cared for. In high school, she was a cheerleader and a good student. After she graduated college in around 1975, she went on to teach elementary school in Florida. She met her first husband, a health club instructor, on the beach in Florida. Together, the couple moved to Atlanta, Georgia, where Sarah did promotions and marketing for her husband's health club. Through that work, she met new clientele and started doing promotional work for nightclubs around the city. As natural as she was at marketing, Sarah didn't love the glitz and the glam of the nightclub world. What she really wanted was children and a family. She was only in her 20s, but she was anxious to settle down. For Sarah's husband, though, the club world was a natural fit. He ended up working with her at a club called Elon after his health club business went under. But the excesses that accompanied the club scene led to a disappointing end for the marriage. After years of struggling with her husband's constant cheating and drug use, Sarah asked for a divorce. The divorce was difficult for her. Sarah was Catholic, and divorce was a taboo for her family. Even worse, she still hadn't had any children, and she was approaching 30. By the time she saw Fred Tokar's familiar face on the evening news in 1985, she was 31 with no time to waste and no room for a second marriage to fail. And in Fred, Sarah saw exactly the kind of man she should spend the rest of her life with. Sarah loved that Fred was a prosecutor fighting for law and order. She was drawn to his sensitive face and his familiar family background. They came from the same world, the same neighborhood even. Their similarities made her feel safe. But the similarities didn't run as deep as she'd assumed. As Sarah's sister, Chrissy, later suggested, 
maybe she wasn't so much in love with him as she was with his image. When they first married, less than a year after they started dating, all did seem well. Fred often worked late, or he stayed out teaching night classes or getting drinks with colleagues. Sarah's tight-knit family was a bit concerned about his absences. It wasn't what they expected or wanted from Sarah's new husband. But there was a logical reason he might be throwing himself into his work. He wanted to get ahead in his career. That ambition and drive could ultimately be a good thing for the whole family, so he got a pass. Sarah was elated when she got pregnant in late 1986, within five months of the wedding. At 33 years old, she would finally be a mother. She kept working as a club promoter throughout her pregnancy, confident in the knowledge that once she had her baby, she'd stay at home. This was an assumption, not something she'd ever discuss with Fred explicitly. And when their son Ricky was born in September 1986, she was in for a surprise. Fred wouldn't hear of Sarah leaving her job. He expected her to help bring home income. This was the first clear evidence for Sarah that her values and Fred's weren't as aligned as she had thought. But she was a peacemaker and perhaps assuaged by the big suburban house they moved into just after the baby was born, Sarah agreed to keep working. Not long after the baby was born in 1986, Fred left his job at the DA and opened up a private practice. Money would be tight for a while until he started turning a profit but they still had Sarah's steady salary to keep them afloat. And then Sarah lost her job. The club scene was suffering under new happy hour restrictions and DUI laws, as well as the increasingly evident AIDS crisis. Sarah was laid off within months of baby Ricky's birth. She ended up a stay-at-home mom by default. The next year, Sarah was pregnant again. Their second son, Mike, was born in 1988. With the loss of Sarah's salary and the addition of two children, an expensive mortgage, and a new business, Fred's financial anxiety was justified. But his extreme reaction to their money problems was the beginning of the end for the couple. Fred began to assert strict financial control over Sarah. He gave her an inflexible weekly allowance, demanding receipts and detailed accounts of how she spent the money. Household repairs, food costs, medical expenses, and expenses for both sons all fell under Sarah's limited budget. It was nowhere near enough to cover everything. The floor around the leaking basement toilet rotted. Sarah's dental work went undone. In the short term, Fred's worries made sense, but after a few years, his behavior became irrational. He was making good money in his private practice, and the family had more savings than ever before. But at home, Fred's profits were hard to see. His strict control over Sarah's budget didn't loosen. His obsessive monitoring of the way she spent her money limited her sense of freedom, and he arbitrarily refused to give her cash for basic household expenses. Sarah knew Fred was more than making ends meet, even if she didn't know the exact details of how much he was making. There was no logical reason for him to be so uptight about money. Sarah opened secret credit accounts to gain back a sense of independence, but she didn't have any income to pay them off. The stress of having to pay off those bills without Fred finding out only made her more unhappy. Cruel, controlling behavior with regard to finances is often categorized as emotional abuse, 
and is often a prelude to physical abuse. And that's exactly what happened here. While Sarah never officially reported any physical abuse, she did mention it to friends and acquaintances. One night in the late 80s or early 90s, Sarah and Fred were supposed to attend a party thrown by a lawyer the couple was acquainted with. The night of the party, Sarah called the lawyer and told him, I feel so bad we're not able to come. I'm not well. He expressed regret and then she went on. I can't come because I have bruises on my left arm and side where Fred beat me. Sarah begged the acquaintance not to say anything about it. He kept quiet and never confronted Fred about it, but he never forgot her harrowed call. As the marriage became more controlling and abusive, Sarah knew she needed to get out. She had her children's safety to consider as well. Apart from Fred's abuse, she was starting to worry about the danger posed by Fred's unsavory clientele. In the late 80s, a few years after Fred opened his private practice, he started insisting that all the family's expenses be paid in cash. Sarah couldn't imagine why he was so afraid of passing money through the family's bank accounts, but she knew it couldn't be a good sign. Fred had always worked late, but now he was staying out even later than usual. When he called Sarah at night, she often heard raucous background noise, as if he was at a club, not the office. Then, one day in the late 80s, she went into his basement office, the one room in the house that was completely off-limits, and saw him snorting lines of white powder off his desk. That was all the confirmation she needed that Fred's work with drug traffickers wasn't entirely above board. Whatever Fred was involved in, Sarah wanted out. As if the abuse, crime, and drug use wasn't enough, four years into their marriage, Sarah began to suspect that Fred was having an affair. On Mother's Day, 1989, Fred flew off to Bermuda alone. Sarah hired a private detective named Ralph Perdomo to follow him and confirm her suspicions about the other woman. Perdomo followed Fred to Bermuda and confirmed the affair, but not without catching Fred's attention. He knew someone was watching him, and it didn't take him long to figure out who. As soon as Fred came home, Sarah confronted him about the affair and demanded a divorce. Fred furiously refused. He blew off the affair as a meaningless fling and threatened to use his political connections to secure full custody of the children if Sarah tried to leave him. His refusal to divorce may have been as practical as it was emotional. Divorce would have meant an examination of his assets, and he couldn't have that, not in 1989. He was far too deep into business with his criminal associates, not just as legal counsel, but on the boards of the nightclubs they used to launder their drug money. Threatening to take custody of the children may have seemed like the best way to prevent Sarah from seeking a divorce, and in turn, to keep his work in the shadows. He was right that losing her children was, for Sarah, an unacceptable risk. But his threat wasn't going to stop her from pursuing divorce. It was just going to make her very careful about how she did it. If she was going to ensure she got custody of her boys, Sarah had to prove that Fred wasn't the upstanding lawyer and family man he seemed. She needed unimpeachable evidence that he was a criminal, and she knew exactly where to find it, his basement office. Coming up, 
we'll dive into Sarah's plan to save herself and her children from her husband's violence. Now, back to the story. By 1989, 36-year-old Sarah Tokars was ready to divorce her husband of three years. Fred was abusive, controlling, unfaithful, and tied up with criminals in ways Sarah could only imagine. In the summer of 89, she started planning her out. Her cousin, Mary Rose Taylor, who was a former journalist, advised Sarah to look into whatever files Fred had stashed away in his basement safe. The basement was Fred's sanctum, where he spent most of his time on the rare occasions when he was home. Sarah wasn't allowed to enter, but she gathered her courage and ventured down anyway. She searched the drawers of Fred's desk and found a note where he'd written down the safe's combination. Inside the safe, she found various pill bottles, cash, and files marked with the names of various small islands, the exact kinds of places that served as tax havens for the wealthy and the criminal. The files were full of bank account information. Sarah didn't quite know what to make of it, but it looked a whole lot like proof of tax evasion. Looking for guidance, Sarah called on Ralph Perdomo, the private detective who had confirmed Fred's affair a few months earlier. Perdomo came over to take a look, but when she handed him the stack of files, he pushed them away. Fred Tokars, with his reputation and legal connections, wasn't the kind of man whose business Perdomo wanted to pry too deeply into. There was also the fact that Sarah owed Perdomo money she was unable to pay with her strictly monitored expenses. He had no motivation to get wrapped up in any more of Sarah's problems. He advised her to copy the files, hand them over to someone she trusted, and ask her family doctor about the pills. Sarah was clearly unsatisfied with Perdomo's advice. She asked him to promise that if anything happened to her, he'd turn the file over to the police. Assuming she, like many of his clients before her, was being melodramatic in the face of a messy divorce, Perdomo agreed to her request. He left the house, and Sarah was left alone with her stack of papers. Sarah couldn't see her way out. She met with a divorce lawyer who advised her to collect a nest egg by saving up a few thousand dollars for herself and her boys before trying to exit her marriage. With no one willing to help her, she decided to bide her time until she could figure out how to finance her escape. That wouldn't be easy with Fred's sharp eyes on her spending, but she was hopeful. She threw herself into volunteering at her boys' Catholic school and began considering going back to work to save up some money. But as months turned to years, and no pathway to divorce presented itself, Sarah started to lose her resolve. Escaping her abusive marriage seemed like a pipe dream, even as her husband's shady dealings became riskier. By 1992, six years into their marriage, Fred was on the radar of law enforcement. A federal investigation into drug trafficking and money laundering in Atlanta had led to some of Fred's clients and business associates. Fred was on high alert, one misstep away from ending up in a cell right next to his clients. What put Sarah at especially high risk, though, was a subpoena the investigators issued for the girlfriend of one of Fred's clients, a man named Anthony Brown. While the prosecutors acknowledged that the girlfriend had no knowledge of Brown's criminal activities, they called her to testify about assets that could be relevant to the charges of tax evasion. 
As Brown's legal counsel, Fred was initially viewed as a witness in the case. But as prosecutors dug into the extent of his connections to Anthony Brown and his associates, Fred became a target of the probe himself. That meant his wife, like Brown's girlfriend, was fair game for a subpoena. Fred may not have been sure that the investigation was targeting him specifically, yet, but he knew they were on to his associates, and that meant he might be next. And what Sarah knew, might know, or could find out, was a risk to him and his violent business partners. Luckily, Sarah had several generous life insurance policies in place. Fred had taken out a life insurance policy for his wife after their second son was born in 1988. That was perfectly reasonable, given that Fred and Sarah had two children to think about. Then, Fred bought a second policy for Sarah's life in August 1989, right after Sarah asked for a divorce. And in the months and weeks before Thanksgiving of 1992, as federal investigations into Fred's associates started closing in, Fred took out several more policies on his wife's life, totaling $1.75 million. Any insurance agent would have questioned why a housewife needed that level of life insurance. But one of Fred's side businesses was selling insurance. He sold the policies to himself. Sarah didn't know about any of this, not the federal investigation, nor the life insurance. She signed the insurance documents Fred handed her, but he never gave her a chance to read them. It's hard to say if she even suspected that the policies had progressed from innocent, normal fail-safes to a blatant money-making scheme that hinged on her own life. Even in 1992, Sarah thought she still had time to collect that nest egg for her and her children and get out of Fred's world before it got too messy. Unfortunately, she was wrong. It was just before Thanksgiving, 1992. Sarah and her two sons, Ricky and Mike, were asleep in the kids' room. Fred, as usual, was out of town. But Sarah and the boys weren't alone in the house. Two of Fred Tokar's business associates, Curtis Rower and Eddie Lawrence, crept in through the sliding glass door. They knew the door would be unlatched since Sarah hadn't scraped together the money to fix the broken lock. They also knew Sarah would likely be sleeping in her son's room and that Fred would be out of town. What they didn't account for was the family's Springer Spaniel. The dog started barking as they crept inside. A light switched on upstairs. The men bolted. By the time Sarah came downstairs, the house was empty and quiet. She shushed the dog and went back to sleep. The next morning, two days before Thanksgiving, Sarah piled her boys into the car and took the long, familiar drive down to visit her family in Bradenton, Florida. Fred, who never drove with her, flew down from Atlanta to meet them. Sarah loved nothing more than those trips to see her family, even though the drive was upwards of eight hours and difficult to do alone. Her family meant everything to her. Fred flew back to Atlanta the Saturday after Thanksgiving, while Sarah and the boys stayed in Florida for another night before taking the long drive back. As soon as he got back to Atlanta, Fred made a call to his business associate, Eddie Lawrence, supposedly, as Fred eventually explained in court, to ask Eddie to repair the water heater in his basement. 
The next morning, on November 29, 1992, Sarah and the boys had a final Sunday lunch with Sarah's father, John Ambrusco, before driving away singing Christmas carols. Sarah told her father they expected to come back to visit the next month for Christmas. Soon after Sarah started her drive, Fred called down to John Ambrusco asking when to expect Sarah home. He told him it'd be around 9.30 or 10 p.m. Within the hour, Fred placed another call to Eddie Lawrence. According to Fred, this conversation included more discussion of the water heater and other business, including Fred's plans to leave town that day. According to Eddie, that other business included discussion of the $20,000 Fred had offered him to kill his wife, Sarah. That afternoon, before his wife and children were back in Atlanta, Fred Tokars left town for Montgomery, Alabama. He claims he had an appointment with a prison inmate there. The inmate later revealed the visit from Fred was a complete surprise to him. Around 9 p.m., Curtis Rower arrived at the Tokar's Cobb County house. He knew the alarm would be off again, the glass doors locked still undone, the house completely empty, and he knew Sarah and her sons would arrive home within the hour. Just after 10 p.m., as expected, Sarah pulled into the garage. Sarah, six-year-old Ricky, and the Springer Spaniel got out of the car. Four-year-old Mike was still asleep in the back seat. And then Curtis Rower stepped out of the house. He was wearing a dark hat and carrying a sawed-off shotgun. Ricky called it a pirate gun. The dog barked and ran between Curtis's feet, but Curtis kicked him out of the way and ordered Sarah and Ricky back into the car. Curtis climbed into the car behind Sarah, pointed his shotgun at her head, and told her to drive. As she drove, she pleaded, just don't hurt my kids. Eddie Lawrence had promised Curtis $5,000 for killing Sarah Tokars, but he hadn't been paid yet, and he wasn't going to pull the trigger until he had the money in hand. About half a mile down the road, Curtis saw Eddie Lawrence's car, right where Eddie had told him to meet him. He ordered Sarah to turn down the cul-de-sac and stop the car. Sarah frantically offered Curtis her purse, her car, anything for the safety of her children. Then she saw Eddie walking up to her window. She knew his face, her husband's business associate, the man who had redone their bathroom, who had spent time with their family. She now knew what was happening, and she wouldn't take it lying down. She put the car into drive and swerved towards Eddie. But Curtis, sitting behind her, still had his gun pointed at her head. As the car jerked into motion, he pulled the trigger. Sarah was shot in the back of the head while her sons looked on in horror. The car rolled to a stop in a nearby field. Blood poured onto six-year-old Ricky as he shook his mother's shoulders. She was already dead. Eddie and Curtis fled the scene. Ricky and Mike climbed out of their car, their clothes splattered with blood, and walked across the field to a nearby house. Ricky knocked on the door and told the homeowner, a bad man shot my mom. Police reached Fred at his hotel in Montgomery later that night. The next morning, he was back in Atlanta. Local news crews captured him in his driveway, disheveled and grieving in the arms of a friend. 
a friend who was a judge on the state Supreme Court. Fred knew who to call when trouble came knocking. Thanks for listening to Assassinations. We'll be back Monday to follow Fred Tokar's 11th hour attempt to redeem his reputation and the public response that made Sarah Tokar's one of the most famous women in Atlanta. You can find more episodes of Assassinations as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Assassinations was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Assassinations is written by Nora Battelle and stars Kate Leonard and Bill Thomas. Bill Thomas